Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump in, do a little bit of review, and then we're going to look at chapters uh, 3 and 4 in, in how people change. So let's, uh, let's first open with a word of prayer. Lord God, we pause this evening to thank you uh, that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that you have called us out of our former ways of living and into a way of life that is to be marked by following after Christ. So Lord, we pray that today's lesson would serve your people in that direction. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so a little bit of a review to start. Uh, we, we spoke in our first or our, our last session about this idea of the, of the gospel gap, that the church is really good at talking about past forgiveness and future hope, but we're not so good about talking, uh, talking about the here and the now. And uh, I've commented to many people about this, and if you don't know Lane and Tripp, uh, Lane and Tripp uh, would definitely fall within the, the movement known as biblical counseling. And I think if you, if you take a step back and you think about the main points of biblical counseling, uh, renewing your mind, um, taking every thought captive, there's significant overlap with that in one of my hobby horses, which is worldview. Is they, they really do go together. Why do people need counseling? Why do they need so many different things? Well, one of the main reasons they need that is they're thinking about themselves wrong. They're thinking about the world wrong. They're, they're, they just, they don't understand things. And a lot of that has to do with the same problem here is, is we like to talk about future. We like to talk about past forgiveness, but it's really hard and messy to talk about the here and now. It's, it's very easy to just say, well, be patient for future hope. Or Jesus did this 2000 years ago, but what does that mean for me to today? That's when you can really make people upset. I know from personal experience. That's how you can really make people upset when you say, well, actually, this means you need to do this now. And uh, people don't like being told what to do. It's also something I've, I've learned over and over again. Uh, in the chapter, we also saw how, what are some common ways we try to fill that gap. Uh, we try to fill the gap. Well, then how then should I live? We do that through things like formalism, where we try to put on uh, the best face. Legalism, we add a, a bunch of extra rules and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, you could do it through mysticism, as I pointed out. This would be the charismatic movement of our day. Well, if you're, you know you're a good Christian if you're having some mystical experience. And if you have much interaction with people who are really into the charismatic movement, you notice that, that their walk is often very, very much like a roller coaster. Very, very high highs, and then very, very low lows. And they're always kind of living, looking for that next high, almost like an addict. Uh, other ways you can fill it is activism, uh, which is really just a form of legalism, uh, biblicism, psychologism, and uh, socialism. These are all different ways that we can try to fill in this gap, as Lane and Tripp point out. And then there's different ways we say, based on that, is what do we think needs to change? Like, if I'm looking for the good life, what needs to change? I think that first one there is the number one thing that most people would say, that what do I think needs to change for my life to be better? My circumstances. That we are just victims of whatever's happening around us. And if what's happening around us were different, we would be all that we could be, which is just not true uh, in the slightest. Now, there may be some bad circumstances in your life you need to get out of, but 
fundamentally our problem is internal, not external. Uh, they then talk about behavior. And yes, your behavior needs to change, but it's not just a 12-step program to change your behavior, the Christian faith. Your thinking, yes, your thinking needs to change, but it's even more than that. Your desires need to change. My self-concept, does that need to change? Well, maybe, but that's not the heart of it at all. And so the heart of the matter, as we talked about, we concluded last week, is the heart. right? And really, we can break the heart down into these three categories here. The mind identifies what it believes to be true, biblically speaking. Uh, the heart desires what the mind believes to be true. And then your will seeks what the heart is desiring. And those three going together, that will build your habits and your character. And so what needs to be changed is really all three of these as they feed off and build off one another. You need to know what is actually true, the renewing of your mind. And if your mind is properly identifying what is true and what is a lie, your heart will then hopefully fall in line, and then your will uh, will fall in line as well. And so today we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. And the chapter 3 is looking at, uh, here's where God is taking you. Before we do that, questions on the review at all? Oh, Joe's got all these questions. He's had no? None? Okay. So chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, then we're looking at, well, where is God taking us? And we're just going to kind of go through some of the main points here really, really quickly here. And I think the first main point we want to see here is this idea that humans are inherently meaning makers. You go about your day, and as you go about your day, you are making sense of it all the time. You are ascribing meaning to everything that you do. Um, so when you get up in the morning and you go to work, you go to work for certain reasons. Some people go to work because it thinks it satisfies them or it, feels, or it uh, gives them an identity. Some people go to work uh, because they, need, they know they need to provide for their family and that gives their work meaning. Some people go to work uh, to try to get ahead and fill in the blanks, some mixture of all of those things. But everything we do, we try to find or ascribe meaning to it. This is one of those unique things about humans. The dog doesn't think about why it's chasing a ball. Dog doesn't think about why it's eating its food. Humans do this. We think about these things uh, all the time. And when we come to grips with that, we realize that there's this really important principle that we need to learn to interpret things in our life correctly. And as we improperly interpret things in our lives, things go poor for us. Elaine and Tripp on page 35 say this. Whether we suffer, strive, achieve, or relax, we ask ourselves consciously or subconsciously, what is the point? The answer we give ourselves, the meanings we give to our thoughts, our circumstances, our relationships, and our actions move us in specific directions. Right? That, that last phrase there. Why is this meaning thing important? Because it moves us in a specific direction. All right? Our interpretations of who we are, who who the people are we are interacting with, our circumstances in our life set our course. They set where you are going in life. And those interpretations, stick with me, they can be right or wrong. This is, shouldn't be that earth-shattering to Christians, but I think our world thinks that your interpretation is, is always right. Uh, to put it another way, what you tell yourself in your head or your inner dialogue is very, very important. What you're saying to yourself, the debates you have in your own head and which side wins the debate uh, literally determines 
who you are. And they set you on a trajectory that we don't arrive at overnight. So sometimes we see, like we take, take an example, like I get emails all the time from big Christian publishing houses. Uh, these are the same houses that used to publish giants like Francis Schaeffer. And then I see the list of all the current books they're publishing. And I'm like, this is pure garbage that's bound for the pit of hell. How did they get there? Well, it just didn't one night go from publishing Schaefer to publishing uh, the latest CRT Light book. They made certain decisions. There was a course they went on, and they, they have arrived there overnight. We have this current trend all the time of, of people deconstructing their faith. They're like, oh, we had an epiphany. No, you've been on this, this for a while. We see pastors now all the time who are compromising uh, on homosexuality. And most of them, if you've been paying attention, aren't surprising the fact that Andy Stanley is compromising on this now isn't surprising. He pretty much told us he was going to do this six to eight years ago when he was saying we need to get detached from the Old Testament. Why do people want to do that? Because the Old Testament makes it very clear you can't behave that way. And so the, the way we assign meaning, the way we interpret things is very, very important. It's a life or death question. An example given here, a trip gives uh, here is that when you look and you live with your spouse, you realize your spouse is a sinner, and you have two fundamental ways you can interact with your spouse who's a sinner. You can come to the point, which I see often in, in troublesome marriages, where you, one or both parties looks at their spouse and say, that person is totally hopeless. What impact is that type of thinking going to have on your marriage? What direction is it going to set? It's going to set you on the course for a divorce. Right. Or you can look at the fact that you're... you're um, the rose-colored glasses came off six to 12 months into your marriage and that your spouse is imperfect, that he or she is a sinner in need of grace. Your interpretation of your spouse is one of the most important things uh, in your marriage. Let me, let me give you an example. I heard this, this song, and maybe you guys know the song. Maybe you don't. I heard it recently this week. It's by a man named Bruno Mars. <laughs> Look at people who know yeah, Bruno Mars has a song called Grenade. And in it, he sings about how he would take a grenade for this girl he loves, but she wouldn't do the same thing. It just keeps going over and over again. It's basically a boy version of every other Taylor Swift song. Right? He's the total victim. And if you start as a man or a woman relating to that song and interpreting your relationship according to this grid that Bruno Mars has put on. It's just this pure victim nonsense. I'm like, yeah, you take a grenade for her, except for you're a whiny little boy complaining about her on the radio. Like, would you really take a grenade for her? I don't think you would. But he's got an interpretation, a meaning, and what would that do to his relationship? Unless you think I'm being silly here, doing marriage counseling, these are the things I see all the time. People are interpreting their spouse this way. And if you're going to do that, well, the, the fruit is, well, really, really, really clear. I didn't move into talking about uh, sin and temptation a little bit. Um, as sinners who live in a sinful world, we face lots of different temptations. And our temptations are often driven by this idea or this ache for the better life. Nobody really does something and thinking it's going to go poorly for them. You do something because you think it's going to lead to something better. And so we're always searching for that, that something more, that something better. And he, they note, and we should note this too, our temptation to sin can come in response to something that is good or something that is evil. 
Like we are really good at taking good things and, um, and making them bad and idolizing them or whatever. So they say poverty, which we could call a result of the fall and, and the evil to an extent, can lead us to temptation to sin. And so can being really wealthy. Wealth isn't the problem, but what do, we, what do we do with the wealth? And so what they want us to see here is that it's not our circumstances that need to change, but rather our circumstances reveal what is already going on inside of us. And this reveals something even more true for us, is what we dream of or what we have as goals will reveal to us what our heart is. If our primary goal is off base, we will end up in sin. And so over these two chapters... They were going to hit this again and again. That our primary goal should be faithfulness and Christ-likeness. Our secondary goals, underneath that, we can have things like happiness, family, success, friends, all of those things. But when we move one of these secondary things to become primary, that's when we've hit idolatry. It's not wrong to be happy. It's not wrong to want your family uh, to be... Um, all believers are to be successful in school or sports or academics or whatever it is. Those things aren't wrong. The problem is, is when we elevate something secondary to primary, we can't reverse the order. And so we want to test what our primary goals are. And they say the good way to do that is to look at your prayer life. What do you go to God to and ask? Please give me this. Are we praying primarily for faithfulness? Or are we praying... Um, for, for other things. It's not wrong to play, pray for other things, but is there that balance? And they want us to then see in this the, the promise that God gives us in Philippians. So if we're talking about how people change, we must consider what God says about, about our change. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Paul writes, It is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Three things to take from this passage here. God has promised to change you degree by degree. I want you to grow in this more and more. God has not promised that you're going to get saved and the next day you're going to wake up and have no problems. And never sin again. But rather he promises to change you degree by degree. But then he also promises a full and complete change. Like you will be fully changed. The process will be completed. And that is meant to give you hope. Like this isn't futile. And so this, they use this really, I think, helpful analogy in the book. As we look at ourselves or look at others, look at your kids, uh, your spouse. As a parent, I can say... Sometimes you, you're just like, I don't think my kids are listening to me at all. I don't think any of it's sticking. You see all their warts, right? and then other people are interacting, and you're like, oh, they're actually pretty good. And I'm like, are you sure? Because it doesn't feel like they're pretty good, but they use this analogy of the, the fixer-upper house. Like, okay, so we got this picture here. So if you're house hunting, and you're looking at a house, and you, you find this, this piece of junk on the road, right? you have two fundamental ways you can look at it. Is it a money pit, or do you see the potential in it? I'm not very handy, so I look at that, and I see a money pit. My sister has uh, bought a house and flipped it, and she's looking to buy another house and fix it up and flip it. She sees the potential in the houses. I don't. I look at that and go, that looks terrible. Why would you want to sign up for all that work? But the analogy is 
what do you think about yourself, your kids, your spouses, and your family? Do you, do you magnify all the flaws and that that's a money pit? Or do you see the potential? Do you see what, do you see people in light of the hope of what they will be in Christ? Because Christians really are to be fundamentally a people of hope. I think we, it's very easy to say that we're hopeful and that we believe in the power of God and we believe in the power of the gospel. And then we get into a really difficult situation or we're dealing with a really difficult person and you're like, it's hopeless. (laughs) Like, it is hopeless. And then to an extent, on a human level, it is. But that's not the entire equation. And so I'm not, um, I'm not a, post-millennial guy but I hang out around with a lot of post-millennial guys and I think one of the greatest things that they have to offer to the church in this dark time is to remind us that we are to be hopeful and joyful people like, like as bad as this time is and it it's pretty bad the church has seen darker times if the Lord tarries the church will see even darker times than this and the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. We are fundamentally a people of hope. So then they they drive that point home by reminding us to live in light of the end. So uh, Jim Ornell's not here tonight, but one of the things ever since I met the Ornell family that's always been a saying of his is is to, whether in life or at work, is to always begin with the end in mind. You want to know where you're going. And that's that's the point they're getting at here. Like God has promised that he's going to complete this work in you. And moreover than that, he's a, a promised you an eternal paradise. So they lay out these three points for us here. Is if you want to go in the right direction, if anything in life, you need to know what your final destination is. You need to know where you're aiming for. And the details of your life will only then make sense when you view them from the perspective of eternity. If there is no heaven... If the new creation is not coming, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, right, then suffering for Christ's sake right now makes no sense whatsoever. But if those things are true, well, that fundamentally changes everything. Eternity teaches us what is really important. So I think this is what is really, really powerful about uh, the, the famous Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress. And right, so as Pilgrim goes along his road, and he faces many trials, many temptations, lied to, tricked to deceive, goes off course from time to time. The constant refrain he is coming back to is this looking forward to the celestial city, looking forward uh, to the end, as it were. What is the destination that we are heading towards? And so as Christians, that is something we have to always keep in mind, that we are glimpsing, fueling our hope for the future, But it's not just a blind hope, it's a future that is meant to inform the present. We're seeking that as our end. And so that gives us a a benefit of not living in fear. We live in faith. We know the end, we know the direction we're heading in. And so we don't magnify fear, we magnify faith. And um, the the Magnificat of Mary... um, her response to the news from, from Gabriel and, and the carrying the Messiah is a good teaching point on this this time of year. She, she goes on to say, my soul will magnify the Lord. 
What am I magnifying in my soul, in my heart, in my mind? Am I magnifying my problems or am I magnifying my fear? Something I said to my old church in uh, spring of 2020. I said, we can't live in fear. We simply can't do it. We can't magnify these things. Does that mean you can't take precautions? No, but if you're living fundamentally out of fear, you're not living in faith. And that can't be who we are. So we seek to magnify Christ, who is our hope, while remembering that change is a process. So that's chapter 3, and that took me far longer than it should have. Questions on chapter 3? No? All right, well, chapter 4 is shorter. So then chapter 4, Lane and Trip. Uh, deal with this concept then of being married to Christ. What does it mean to be married to Christ? And like I said, we'll go through this quicker. Right, to be married to someone quite literally means to become one with them. Right? That's at the, at the heart of the marriage picture. Male and female, they become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And we learned that that refers to Christ and the church. And in marriage, you get the person's assets and their liabilities, like the whole, two whole lives uh, come together. So when Emily and I, I got married, I was not yet done with college, but she got all of my student loan debt. She also had some, so I got all of hers. We, we did all that, and we also had assets. We didn't have much because we were young and married, but they all became one. And this is a good picture for us when we consider our relationship to Christ. If we are married to Christ, uh, he gets all of our liabilities, and we get all of his assets. This is a, a good thing. You know, Philippians 1 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We can be sure of this because we are indeed married to Christ, one to Christ, with Christ, that God will complete his work in us. And so then we speak a little bit here about means versus ends. And so we have to make this, this very clear like, okay, so what does this mean for now? That we need to not confuse the means of grace, the things that God uses to give us grace in life, with the end goal. Right? The means for how God helps to transform his people include, but are not limited to, Bible reading, worship attendance, uh, worshiping God, uh, journaling, uh, memorization of scripture. Uh, we could add into this uh, fellowship with Christians, um, encouraging one another bearing one another's burdens, and then the list goes on and on and on. Those are the means, right? but that's not the goal. The end goal is a person, right? It's Christ, like you are married to Christ. The means are good, but they are not the substance of the faith. The end goal, this is where I think churches often get this very, very wrong. The end goal of the Christian life is not to have perfect spiritual disciplines, Spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, worshiping, are good things that God uses to give us grace and sustain us in life, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is union with Christ, which God accomplishes for us. It's not something that we bring about. And if we push this even further, this marriage analogy that the Bible uses, uh, when we think about what is our goal... In marriage, um, our goal is fidelity or faithfulness to our spouse. This is what they write. If I am married to Christ, the core of my present life is not personal happiness, but spiritual purity. 
If I am married to Christ, the core of my personal life is not personal happiness, but spiritual purity. You should also apply that to your current marriage. The goal of your marriage is not your personal happiness. It's faithfulness to your spouse. And as you're faithful to your spouse, guess what you get? Happiness. But if you make happiness the goal, what you end up with is with neither. Right? So then we ask the question, what then tempts us to unfaithfulness? So I drive this point home a little, a little bit more. The now and then structure, or as we say uh, often, the already and not yet. You are already Christ. In the sense, you're betrothed to him, but you are not yet fully his. The marriage supper of the Lamb has not yet happened. We are, we are still waiting for the fullness of that. We are preparing for the eternal marriage of the church and Christ. And then that then pushes us to a fidelity, an all-inclusive fidelity to him or faithfulness that is meant to cover our entire lives. And so we get back to the idea of assets and liabilities from Colossians 1 and 2. Right. So the liabilities come from us. Sin, falling, blindness, enslavement to sin. The assets we get from Christ. Justification, wisdom, power, uh, new creation. goes on and on and on. And that marriage imagery conveys our union and oneness with him. That's chapter 4. I told you it was going to be quicker. That's chapter 4. So that leads us to the, to the conclusion summarize all of this know your goal in life fidelity or faithfulness know the destination you're heading towards christ's kingdom know your relationship to christ you are married to him you are one with him and therefore you are to live in hope